And so the percentage of the population who is asking questions about the viability of our currency system and the uh, ability of that currency to retain purchasing power over time is going way up. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Eric Chemi. It's no surprise when you read the front page of the newspaper, there are conflicts going around in the globe right now, and they're affecting natural resources. They are affecting the economy. They're affecting people's finances and pocketbooks, the S&P 500, bond yields, commodities prices. All of those are interacting and affected by what's happening in Israel, what's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in other hotspots around the globe. So it's really important that we dive into these issues and we see what are we looking at in terms of the future? What are the next few years you bring to the world? And so I wanted to bring on an expert to talk about that. Jay Martin is my guest today, and I'm very excited to chat with him. He's the CEO of Cambridge House International. It's a conference business, among other things, featuring some of the leading minds in geopolitics, natural resources, economics, and the future. Jay also has a newsletter, a podcast, and his very own YouTube channel, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Over the past 10 years, he's expanded Cambridge House into one of Canada's leading finance and business brands. So Jay, you know, let me get right to it. Are we facing World War III? Is that what's coming? Are we in the beginning stages of that right now? Well, yeah, so that's a big question, Eric, and great to be here, by the way. Great to connect with you. Um, so, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I think it's a very important one to ask. And, um, you know, chaos abounds this decade. We haven't had a year thus far where we haven't been hit by a significant haymaker and we're only three years into the decade. And, you know, so what's, you could point to the variety of crises that have occurred thus far from, you know, global economic shutdowns in response to pandemics, uh, civil unrest that sort of erupted in the United States, but spread around the globe and, and now hot wars that are becoming super real and, and accelerating quite, quite fast. You could isolate those and say, oh, this is because of that, and, and this instance is its own thing, and this over here is a territory war, and they're all separates, and they're not related, and you could definitely make that argument. But, you know, I, I'm not sure I feel that way. I, I kind of feel like we are entering a major transition period, and when we're in major transition periods, everything becomes a little bit less certain because we don't know what the future holds, and humans aren't good at dealing with that. And so, you know, stepping back from the, the day over day and weekly headlines, I, I try to do this, right, Eric, because it's so seductive to fall into the, the latest hyperbolic headline and, and think that this is, you know, we can break down these very complex events with, a, you know, the morning headline. It's never the case. What I try to do is step back as far as I can and look at the cycles of history, look at as big of a picture as I can fathom, right, and then make some assumptions about the future based off of that, because, I can't time markets and I can't predict near-term volatility and, and predicting near-term events in general, I think is a mugs game. I think it's impossible. Um, you know, when people ask me, what do you think inflation is going to do over the next six months or interest rates or the market? It's like, I got no idea. I can't predict that stuff, but I can. It's reasonable to make some assumptions about how the world may, may change over the course of 10 years. That is a game that we can play a little bit because those mega trends, they pivot less often. They're less subject to volatility that occurs along the way. And so, you know, are we in the sunset years of the American empire? I mean, that'd be another way to ask the same question. Like if we're heading towards World War III, you know, those two things are gonna happen in tandem um, or at least, you know, put, put the US empire on notice, right? And, and so if we step back and look at 
you know, the cycle of empires, what we know about them in terms of written history, we can look back, we'll look quite far, but just at the last like 600 years, you know, we'll see the rise of five unique empires, starting with, you know, Portugal and its own world reserve currency. It's more of a maritime currency, but it did function as a world reserve currency. You saw the Spanish Empire, the Dutch Empire, the British Empire, now the American Empire. So it gives you a bit of a hint, right, at the expeditious nature with which power rotates around the globe and the life cycle of these superpowers. And so towards those sunset years of each one of those empires, you see the same telltale things uh, occur. And one is insolvency, right? People get over their skis in terms of debts and, and uh, you know, a population that started kind of poor but very productive becomes wealthy. And that wealth feels decadence, that decadence feels debts, and that debt feels decline. And that's like at a super high level, you know, the, the grand cycle of, of emerging nations. Um, wasn't that long ago, America was that emerging nation, you know, a third world country clinging to the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, like not that long ago, but they became productive, um, became wealthy, became decadence, became over indebted. And, and now the question is, are we facing the decline? And so I, I think you, may, you can make a case that we're there. And the second thing you often see during the sunset years, during, during those periods of transition, is civil unrest, like internal dispute within the population of that superpower that borders on some sort of major crisis, maybe even a civil war, right? And this usually occurs in response to increasing wealth disparity, but people on the losing end of wealth disparity often don't know why they're on the losing end of wealth disparity. And so they start looking for enemies because they just know they feel poorer than they used to. And they can see certain people are getting wealthier and their life's getting better and theirs isn't. And this manifests in all kinds of rage and anger and frustration. And that turns into civil unrest and division and lack of being able to have just basic civil discourse because everything becomes partisan. And again, it's like you can say that we're seeing that symptom as well. And the third that you often see is the external competitor. And another country has to rise up, become strong enough in terms of share of global trade and productivity to challenge that superpower. And when those three things occur simultaneously, then things get real. That's often when you see the puck begin to transition. Sometimes that manifests in, in a large war. I certainly hope it does not. But you could make a good argument that all three of those are in play. And is there the external competitor? And often that external competitor, by the way, isn't just one country. Uh, it's a collection, like a syndicate of smaller nations that are able to pause their ideological differences in order to align to unseat the global superpower. And you could make a case that we're seeing that too. So, you know, all that's in play. It doesn't predict the future. I'm actually quite bullish on America, to be honest. Like I'm, I'm taking, taking my viewpoint there and I'm happy to explain why. But, you know, I, I don't know what's around the corner, uh, but there's enough volatility and enough uncertainty that I'd... I'd Financially, I want to be in a position where I'm kind of prepared for for anything right now. We got a lot to unpack there. I like, like I like that you broke it down. So you said the three factors: insolvency, civil unrest, external competitor. Did I get those three right? Correct. And then, obviously, you're in Canada. We're talking about America, sort of that current empire. We in America have this perspective, right? We're sitting in it. We're in that American bubble. We're reading American-based news. It's it's America and then and sort of the world revolves around America. When you're in Canada, though, what is that perspective, right? You're so close to America. You're on the same continent. You're just a few miles away, but you're not in America. You have a little bit more of a global perspective, a little bit more of that British Commonwealth perspective. How different is it in terms of, are you able to be more objective? Are you able to be more neutral because you're not in America to do this analysis? 
I mean, at a high level, probably, yes. And I would wager to say that the citizens of each one of those empires didn't, wouldn't have expected that the end can come because it's logical to think that what's existed my entire life will exist for the rest of my entire life and my kids' lives and all this. Like, that's a reasonable thing to think. And so, you know, that's, that's hindsight bias. That's recency bias. It's just basic human heuristics. So probably a bit more objective. Now, my family's dual citizenship. You know, my, my wife's American. My kids are dual. We spend a lot of time stateside and probably will move back there inside of 18 months. So I also feel like I'm quite connected to my American family and see it through their eyes as well. But no, I, 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 my thought is that uh, unless you're paying attention to these big historical cycles, it's very easy to just assume this is short-term volatility and nothing of real consequence. But when you step back and look at the big picture and say, well, what traditionally happens you know, over this period of time in countries like this that have this share of global wealth and power, when certain symptoms begin to emerge, history repeats itself again and again and again and again. And, and you can go back further than 600 years, you'll find similar symptoms and very similar cycles. So that, that's what history does for me. It provides that relativity that it's like, I may have a bias here and some emotional attachment to an outcome I want, but what's history show us occurs most frequently. And so it's helpful. Does, does history show us most frequently that when you read the press, everyone is saying that there's going to be a war or a breakdown or the end of the empire, but it doesn't happen, right? I, I look at history books let's say over the last 100 years, 150 years, talking about America, this will be the end of America. This will be the end of democracy. This particular president who nowadays we wouldn't even have remembered, this is the worst president in the history of the country. And you see these stories decade after decade that whatever's happening in that decade is the worst thing that's ever happened and, and our children will never live to see the future. We know that that turned out to be wrong, right? Because we're sitting here in 2023 and we survived, right? The, uh, America still exists as a country for better or worse. Maybe it's not as strong as it used to be. And we know it has a lot more debt than it used to be, but it, it still exists. It, how, do we, how do we decipher if what we're reading now, all the doom and gloom is just more of the same, right? How, how do we know when to tease it out? Yeah, that's such an important question because you're absolutely right. And here's the thing. Okay, so a few things I want to say about that. You know, the doom and gloom business is and always will be thriving because it's so seductive to tell people to be scared. And so, you know, collapse predictions, crisis predictions, all of that stuff, it will always sell. And it's it's such a it's a safe business model to be honest. You look at the individuals who constantly call for market crashes, for example, they never have to be right. Because they can just say they're early, right? When you, when you predict a crash and it doesn't occur, everybody forgets about it, like the next day. So you just go on to the next one. And heaven forbid you predict the crash and it occurs, you're heralded as this oracle. And they make a movie about you and they call it the big short, right? Michael Burry has predicted like a dozen collapses like that. He got one extraordinarily correct and he's a Hollywood star. But like, that's a great business because you don't have to be right. I think I just read the other day, I think he just closed his short position because he was predicting a crash right now. And I read, you know, I don't know if this is true or not, but I read reports saying that he closed his short position and he lost a ton of money on it. Because as you're looking at the S&P 500, 4,500, not, not 2,500 right here. Right. So where's the media coverage of that, 
right? Like it's, it's way less attractive to publish that. And so, you know, we, we know all the names, right? You can pick them out uh, who, who have been on my show and, and on yours who call for the impending doom and collapse and all this stuff. And it attracts eyeballs, but it's not healthy for you. It's, it's really bad for you as an investor. It shakes people out when the winning strategy has always been duration. I mean, that's, you look at a guy like, like Buffett, the reason he's Warren Buffett is because he's been an investor for over 80 years. He started in his early teens. He's still going in his 90s. You know, had he run the exact same portfolio strategy, but started when he was 30, like most people, and quit when he was 65, he'd be worth less than 1% of his current net worth, and none of us would have ever heard his name. He still would have been very wealthy, by the way, because that's still long duration, 35 years is a long time. But duration typically wins. And when you fall into these like doom and gloom headlines, for lack of perspective, it can really hurt you. Um, you know, same reason the number one asset most investors ever end up owning is their house. And it's not because real estate always outperforms. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But that asset specifically becomes the best performing because it's the one asset that people end up owning for 25 years. Because Duration. You can't trade it. You can't get in and out every month. You're you, sort of you stuck. You shouldn't with try. It. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But we treat equity ownership like that, right? It's the same thing. You're you're buying ownership when you're investing in the market or whatever. But we we act like traders, and even people who identify as investors, they still act like traders very frequently. So, you know, a lot of what you said, right? Like, so let's let's run through what I said, right? I said insolvency of the state. Okay, so you could say today, thirty-two trillion in debt, uh, that's unsustainable. As if twenty trillion wasn't. Was they that a reasonable? They said it at five. They said it at ten. They said it at fifteen. So and, and they'll they say it at, at some point. At some point, because it, you sort of feel like, well, it can't be a hundred trillion. It can't be a thousand trillion. Whatever that <laughs> yeah. word is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eventually, it breaks for sure, for sure. But back to like my inability to time markets. I don't know when that's going to be. And I think that we can kick the can down the road a lot further than people think because, well, there's still. I mean. Frankly, there's still a lot of substance in the net asset value of America, um, militarily, from an educational standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, from a culture standpoint. Despite the divisions, you've still got the most entrepreneurial culture in the world. Like, I know that because I see it and I live it, right? When I'm doing business down there versus anywhere else, I, I love it. That's why we're moving back stateside inside of 18 months. And so, you know, $2 trillion deficit, that's unsustainable. Well, it's as if a $1 trillion deficit wasn't, right? Here we are again, you know, and, and we can push this can a lot further. Now, eventually, yes, there's going to be something that breaks big, like, you know, big, like a, a, great, a great reset will occur because we look at history and we, we have to acknowledge that it will happen because it always has happened. I mean, that's my thought. Every, every empire eventually, along with their reserve currency, they come to an end every single time. And I don't think this will be an exception, but trying to time that uh, man that's a that's a mugs game and you know on the civil unrest front i'll just share with you that I've, I've had the former prime minister of canada on my podcast a couple of times prime minister harper and i asked him outright i said i look at these civil divisions and i look at the trajectory of them and they make me quite concerned because i don't see this turning around how do we get back to a place of civil discourse and, and basic civility i think this train's left the station and it's not coming back and he said, yeah, okay, that's because you don't have the perspective that I have. He's like, Jay, I grew up in the 60s. We had civil unrest at a scale where political leaders were being assassinated. These things happened. That's the era I grew up in. We had the Chicago riots, but we came back. And so, you know, perspective is very, very important. It seems right now, sure, that it couldn't possibly get worse. But in fact, it's been worse and it got better. So again, it's like, you know, we can come back from almost anything and to time that 
that end. It's not something I would ever consider myself capable of doing. So because of that, it's like, all right, well, let's just step back and look at the major cycles and say, what is eventually an inevitability, but let's play the game that's on the table right now simultaneously. I like that phrase. It's been worse, but it got better. Yeah. No matter how bad you think it is now, it's been worse and it Many got times. better. Absolutely. You know? You've got a the conference coming up Thursday, November 30th. So that's a, a week after Thanksgiving, Thursday, the full day. And, and some of your guests, General Wesley Clark, Eric Prince, among others. When you're talking to real, true leaders like that, that have been on the inside, they know what decision-making is like on the highest levels. They have intelligence that we will never have access to. What is their perspective on everything? What are they looking at? What are they truly afraid of? And what are they like, you know, this is just media hype. I'm not really too worried about it. These are other countries barking, but not biting. Yeah, it's a great, great question again. So, you know, I actually get a bit of flack, Eric, when I have guests like this, like when I had the former prime minister and I've had the former president of Mexico and, you know, and um, on November 30th at this conference, we'll have General Wesley Clark, we'll have Dr. Pippa Malmgren, who was the special assistant to George W. Bush, um, Elbridge Colby, who was the deputy assistant to the secretary of defense. And, uh, People often push back and like, why do you want to talk to these, you know, warmongering neocon politicians? And I'm like, man, put your bias aside. They're, they're decision makers and their decisions actually have massive consequence on your lives and mine. And I want to understand the psychology of those decisions and, you know, what the insider conversations are, right? And so this event is built to separate from the hyperbole and separate from the sensationalism and get to what's tactically real on the ground heard from individuals who have been part of those conversations in the White House, in the Oval Office, literally. And so, I mean, like their opinion or not, I'm not here to win friends or convince you of anything. I'm here to understand the world better, right? And so I want to talk to the individuals who can help me with that. And I, I find that I do get a more pragmatic approach, one that often rubs my audience the wrong way. For example, when I had Prime Minister Harper on again, you know, we were talking about the value of fiat currency and you know his response is look fiat currency is backed by the taxation power of the government obviously that sets gold bugs minds on fire they don't want to hear that right but there's also truth to it and it works and it's worked for decades now eventually right you can't expand the monetary base forever you end up with that capitulation moment which is the end of empire but in the interim these systems get repeated so it's important to hear both sides because I'm overexposed to the libertarian, like anarcho-capitalist side. I get a lot of that and I resonate with most of it, you know, but I need to hear the other side too, to make sure I've got a balanced view and I'm not blinding myself to reality. What do you think a normal person is missing, right? When a normal person, they go to their job, let's say they, they live in the suburbs, they drive to work, they're in their office, they read their basic newspapers. If anyone reads the newspapers, I guess everyone's on Twitter now or they're watching cable news. What are they missing from the reality? Like you said, you've got these true experts that have been at these decision-making points. What does the normal person not understand about the complexity of, of, of the diplomacy that's involved, right? When we see America's relationship with Saudi Arabia, for example, are they good guys or are they bad guys? Well, you know, we do a lot of business with them. We rely on them for oil. We rely on them for partnership. But then all of a sudden they invest in a golf league and everybody loses their mind, right? So yeah. you can't have them investing in golf, but it's okay if we want to do arms deals and oil deals. That's, you know, it feels like we have lost the plot on the priorities here. What is it that you think the normal person doesn't understand that the true decision makers have to sort out and deal with? 
Okay, so I would I say I gave you a lot. I gave you a lot there. Yeah, no, that's cool. It's a really interesting question, and and one thing I think that we make the mistake of doing is we put uh, government bodies and agencies and key decision makers up on pedestals, and sometimes imagine that they're incentives are different from just yours and mine. And we forget that at the top of that pyramid, it's just another human subject to the exact same human nature as you or I. And so, you know, hopefully they're looking out for the collective best interest, but also they're going to be looking for a good deal. They're going to be looking to take care of their immediate tribe. They're going to be looking to protect their income and their career. And so, you, you know, I, I think that I find that to be a more pragmatic view of when it comes to whatever sort of policy outlay you're looking at, right? Monetary policy, fiscal policy, um, you know, government bodies are made up of human beings that are subject to the same weaknesses uh, as you and I are, right? And so step one is like- yeah, They don't wanna get fired. They don't, they don't get fired, get fired right? Yeah. yeah, and I, I find that to be quite liberating, honestly, Eric, because it makes me realize, okay, in reality, no one's got my back. If it really comes down to it, nobody has my back. And that's great news because it puts me in the driver's seat and puts me in control. And that's exactly how you want to feel. As soon as you point to somebody else, whether it's your boss or that politician, and you say, it's their fault, my life is like this. It's their fault, this thing occurred. Right away, you're, you're passing accountability and therefore power to change, right, to somebody else. And you're giving up control. You never want to do that. That's the antithesis of sovereignty. And you don't want to do that. And so step one is just like, step back and understand, you know, they're human beings doing their best with what they have, making mistakes, uh, falling victim devices, um, and all this stuff, and maybe trying to do the best best job they possibly could, maybe, hopefully. And often that's the case, but not always. And we can't, I think, be the best judge of when and when that is and when that isn't. Um, you know, and I, I don't know the answer to that, but I, I say like I, I try to simplify things as much as possible. And I think at at the core base level of what really dictates the direction of our world there's, there's two things and one is human nature which we kind of discussed it's how we are with each other right do we cooperate or are we antagonistic right are we incentivized to be productive or not right and you can find all kinds of examples of different cultures all over the world who operate in any of those buckets so how are we with each other human nature and the second is raw materials what do we have access to because that's how we build our economies and currencies and technologies but it all comes back to that who are we and how are we with each other and what do we have access to? And from there, we can build anything, right? Um, and so if you look at the distribution of influence and power around the world, you'll often come down to those two things. You know, where are the countries who are incentivized to be productive? They've got leaders in place that incentivize productivity and a culture that is rooted in, in some sort of cooperation and ambition, right, to better their circumstance. And secondly, they have access to some stuff to help with that process, right? They have access to natural resources, et cetera, to uh, to leverage and, and grow and be productive and you know so do you see us moving in the wrong direction with the the tax to safety net ratio yeah absolutely I do and I'm very worried about that as well and whenever I'm thinking very strongly or feeling very strongly about something or taking some some pretty consequential action I recognize that I'm not really a, a novel thinker I'm part probably part of a trend part of a group of people that are feeling and acting the same way and, and for example like we're we're on our way out of Canada, right? And it's not going to shock a lot of people, but I feel really fortunate. So who's I feel you? very, what's that? Your, your whole family? Who's we? You and who? My family. Yes. I got three little boys and my wife, right? And so uh, as I mentioned, we're, we're heading stateside 
but also putting down roots in Indonesia, actually. We've been spending a lot of time in Southeast Asia and are heading back there in February. And um, I feel very fortunate to have grown up in Canada, surrounded by opportunity, predictable, safe governance, all, all this stuff. And I have friends who are like, oh, you're going to jump ship now from the country that get, that's given so much to you, you know. Uh, and I get that argument, I suppose. But simultaneously, I've employed hundreds of people in this country, literally hundreds. At my conference alone in, in January, I'll employ over 360 people one year, right? I've paid millions in taxes. I feel like, man, I gave it my all here. You know, I really did. And to, you know, I, I had an event company. We were doing, you know, a few million. We got shut down in the pandemic by people who were not hurt by that decision. I got my income shut off by individuals who didn't have their income shut off. I mean, that, that hurts a little bit. But, right, I refinanced my house and built a media company, right? Now, now we're back, right? And, and it's like that entrepreneurial journey is real. And anybody who's been through it and understands the emotional roller coaster and the severity of the consequences, you, you know, you got to think really hard about what you're going to contribute to in the future. And so if I'm now finding myself in a geographic location where I don't feel rewarded for the work and risk that I'm taking on, then I'm going to go somewhere else, right? Money goes where it's treated best. At the end of the day, I am money. I am a store of value uh, and a vehicle of transaction and exchange. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking abroad, man. We're, we're going to get out of here. Uh, Let's break this down. So what state are you going to in the United States? Because each state has their own issues where depending on how they tax and what's happening, you're seeing in, intra-U.S. movement, what state are you picking? Yeah, so we love Texas because my wife is Texan. Okay. Um, and within Texas, you know, we've been looking at Austin a lot. Given the, the media company, it's actually a great location for us to be from a business standpoint. Uh, we both love Nashville, actually, and Tennessee is great. Um, we've got a lot of family in San Diego. I'm, I'm not as excited about San Diego. The weather's amazing. Uh, Boise, Idaho, have family in Boise, Idaho, so we've been there as well. And um, yeah, I mean, Tennessee, Texas, Idaho. Uh, I love Scottsdale. I love Arizona. I like the hot weather. You know what I mean? And uh, I've got lots of friends in, in Scottsdale. Um, Arizona is another state that's fairly favorable uh, from my perspective. So there's a couple locations. But, you know, honestly, right now, the most attractive place um, for us is Indonesia. So we're, we're going back. I was going to say, I was just going to ask, what, what Indon why Indonesia? What's going on there? That, to me, feels like a very dangerous place to be if all of a sudden China decides we're taking over this whole area, this South China Sea and the dash line map. This is all us now. Yeah. So, so that is very important. And it is the next hotspot, as you mentioned, right? We've, we've seen the eruption in Europe. We've seen it now in the Middle East. The South China Sea looks to be the next in line. Tensions are very high. The U.S. Navy is there. Like it's going on, right? So something could snap very, very easily. So uh, being agile, I think if you're in my situation where you're, you're, moving around a bit. My business is all remote now uh, and, and all this, but, but uh, what I love about Indonesia is real simple. It's a, uh, the culture is amazing. Uh, it's a very productive and, and ambitious culture. And I, I think the, the government there has been very intelligent in terms of providing a variety of visa programs to incentivize affluent business owners to move there. And so they've got a very aggressive immigration policy, but it's also very focused on highly productive individuals with money, which matters. I think, you know, we're never going to stop immigration. It's, it's one of the most natural things in humanity. But if you're governing that policy, you can be strategic with it and, and be a bit selective. And President Widodo has been extraordinarily selective. In addition, you know, we'll get into the raw materials component, but I also think he's been very strategic from an economic standpoint with the raw materials they have access to. So back to that, 
Indonesia is the biggest, the largest nickel exporter in the world. So that's their, that's their power card. That's their ace, right? That's what they have to leverage. And President Widodo has leveraged that now. He's put a ban on all raw nickel exports. So he's still exporting nickel, but he's processing now in-country. And their nickel revenues have 30x since this move last year. So he's still exporting nickel, but he just wants to own more of the supply chain and capture that income, which he's done very effectively. Next, he'll be doing the same with copper and cobalt. Now, the reason it strikes me as interesting is because traditionally, when you see a country leader want to capture more income from their natural resources, they impose things like super taxes on the extraction industries, or they nationalize companies and mines. And he's not done that, right? He's just He's just expanding his own supply chain in country, still exporting the raw material, but making Indonesia more productive to capture more income. And decisions like this are attractive to me. Do you think that electric vehicles just hurt America because of the, the batteries needed and all the, all the you know, raw earth materials, the rare earth materials that we need that China has been taking advantage of and owning? Whereas if we just had a country of gas cars... We got all, all the oil we need we have right here in the United States. So I sometimes am confused by who do we think we're helping by cutting off our own natural resources that we have under our own ground so that we can allow China to own all the materials that we need for these EVs. What's your thought on that? Uh, so a couple thoughts. I think that the renewable energy ideology um, is is very has been very short-sighted in that you'll see protesters readily putting up signs that say, leave it in the ground, cancel the fossil fuel industry because we need to transition to renewable uh, carbon emission-free energy sources. Now, on the surface, that sounds great. And I got three young kids and I, wanna, I want them to grow up in a clean, sustainable planet. I've lived a lot of my life in very small communities and very remote places. I think I'm quite intimately familiar with what we stand to lose if we don't take care of our habitats. I do. Having said that, do we expect those protesters with the leave it in the ground, leave the oil in the ground signs to then turn them around and on the other side, it's going to say and permit every mine because turns out we don't have any of the ingredients to build the renewable energy infrastructure yet. And so we need to get, we need to extract that. And that's obviously not going to happen, but that's step two in the renewable energy transition. No one wants to think to step two because I mean, that takes work, but step one is demonize and vilify and point the finger fossil fuels are bad we need a cleaner earth so transition but the strategy to implement there is where we've landed now and i think i think people are i mean people in finance or in the extractive industries have known this the whole time but now mainstream's waking up to the fact that that's not a feasible plan just simply put we don't have the stuff we need yet i mean the way you transition from one energy to the next again looking at the cycles of energy transitions is when, when the new source of energy becomes cheaper, that's when we transition and never before, never before. And that's, we're nowhere close to that right now. Not even close, not even no. close. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's, it's premature, absolutely. I, I'm just so confused by it because I'm looking at, from what I read, right, China's going around and they're making sure they've got all these natural resources. I appreciate you know, what they're trying to do in Indonesia, but you're right. In a lot of these countries, especially with oil, as you saw over the last hundred years, the country would take over. It'd be a state-run oil business, usually a lot of corruption, usually a lot of mismanagement, a lot of a lot of money, like profits that weren't captured because they couldn't run the business properly. And, and you, we know the countries where we saw the civil unrest as a result. We saw American companies, contractors getting kicked out to make it state-run and then a lot of problems at that point. 
So we might see that in other countries, right? We, we don't know yet the future, but it just seems like we lose our advantage here in America allowing this to happen. And we haven't taken advantage, maybe as the Chinese have, of let's go to Africa. Let's effectively colonize these places and own their mines, own their natural resources. And now we own the full supply chain for you want those EVs, you want those batteries, you got to work through China. I don't know how that helps the U.S. No. Well, we need a deal maker in the decision making seat and we don't have one right now. And I'm talking about America. I'm talking about Canada, too, by the way, because, you know, we have an abundance of natural gas. But when so the much, German so much, yeah. chancellor came to Canada right after the Ukrainian invasion to beg for a natural gas deal, our prime minister told him he couldn't make a business case to sell natural gas to Germany, but he could promise hydrogen, which we don't have any of, but we will maybe in 15, 20 years when he'll be far out of office, but that's the kind of decision-making we have. We don't have deal makers. We don't have business backgrounds, um, frankly, capitalists in, in office. And that's what we need right now. And so, you know, ha having said that, Biden did meet with President Widodo last week to strike a deal for nickel and rare earth. So they're trying and they see um, the opportunity there. President Widodo knows he's walking a fine line, by the way. When you restrict access to your resources, you create a lot of enemies. And after they put this nickel ban in place, China, Russia, the United States, and Europe all approached the World Trade Organization to, uh, to ask for condemnation of, um, of Indonesia's decision. And President Widodo came out and said, look, we have to dare to take these steps. He knows he's making potential enemies. Um, you know, I was on a podcast a couple of weeks ago and the host asked me, could you ever see countries going to war over nickel? And it sounds like a crazy thing. Like, why would we? But we've gone to war over bananas. I mean, you look at the history of warfare. We've gone to war for tobacco, for nutmeg many times. This is why we go to war, right? We colonize and go to war because of natural resources. That's, that's often the main reason that we go to war. Yeah. And by the way, the banana wars were a real thing in the late 18th, early 19th century. And tens of thousands of people died in Ecuador and El Salvador and Cuba, Nicaragua. To protect, to protect the interests of the United Fruit Company. It was the exact same story. One country protecting their interest in another country's resources. That's always been the case. We tend to associate that with oil today because that's the times. Uh, but as we move forward and new commodities will rise up because that's the back to the raw materials. Like if you really make this world sports specific, it's most fundamental principles. It's like, what are the raw materials that matter and who has them, right? And, and we'll see how this plays out. What are the hotspots then in terms of, I'd say, investment opportunities? When you look at different kinds of commodities, whether it's oil, gold, the, the, the different minerals, where do you see the biggest opportunity from a natural resource point of view? Well, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I think we are in, I'm not hesitant. I believe we're in a commodity super cycle. Tell but, me what you believe. Yeah, yeah, I want to know what you believe. Yeah. I, I understand that people get very frustrated hearing that because they isolate the couple commodities they're most focused on. And if they're not performing, they discount the whole thesis. I get that. So at a super high level, the reason I feel like we are in and will continue to be in a commodity super cycle is back to the fracturing of geopolitical relationships. You know, I grew up in the era of globalization, uh, increased sharing of whatever you needed. If you had the cash or the credit, you could buy whatever materials you needed from a global marketplace. Trust was in place, fragile as it might've been, trust enough, for the world to operate as one global marketplace. And that era is over. That's come to a close. And what happens next won't be simple, uh, easy to predict or quick, but it's different. And it definitely includes less sharing of resources. 
uh, more battle lines drawn on the geopolitical chessboard. And so that just makes everything a bit more scarce than it used to be, because you thought you could get your lithium from here, your manganese from there, uh, your nickel from here, and maybe you can't anymore. So when, the, when anything becomes scarce, the value goes up because you have to work a lot harder to secure your supply. And countries recognize that. So my, my base case for the commodity super cycle is just that when geopolitical lines get fractured and we're no longer friends with everybody anymore, the supply of everything becomes uncertain. We don't know where we're going to get all the stuff we need, right? 25% of the world's grain comes from Russia and the Ukraine, for example, right? And, and commodities are, it's a big industry and a super cycle doesn't run, um, you know, all at once, everything go, you know, you right. look at, not all resources are moving up and down exactly at the same time. They, they never will. Exactly. Yeah. You look at the live cattle futures chart. It's like the hottest chart in the world, but silver's flat. Like what, but those are different things, you know, and, and you'll see a rotation of rally move through the commodity sector. And that's what we've seen for the last five, six years. And we'll continue to see that. And, you know, gold had its moment in 2020. It's since pulled back. It's kind of heating up again now. Right. But there's two factors at play. There's, there's the, the big macro supply and demand picture, and that's the long-term trend. But then in the interim, you have traders that get involved, and they start overbuying and overselling. They run prices up and then cut them back, and they overbuy and they oversell. And that creates sort of interim volatility along the way, which makes it really hard for investors to maintain their conviction, um, which is why the most important question every investor should ask is, what kind of investor are you? Are you a short-term swing trader or are you a long-term value investor? And getting really clear on that and then clear on your time horizon helps you build conviction in your long-term thesis back to my inability to predict the world in six months. But I think it's reasonable to make some assumptions about the world in seven to 10 years. Let's, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's, let's do the 10-year. I was going to say, let's do that 10-year time frame. Let's say, I'm just going to assume for our audience's sake, if, if they want to sit here and watch a video that is more than 30 minutes long, they've got a longer-term perspective on. So let's talk about that 7- that to 10-year time frame. Yeah, sure. So, so coupled with the fracturing of geopolitical battle lines, then we look at where has capital gone in the last 12 to 15 years? And all of the raw material industries, the commodity sector, the extraction industries have all been incredibly starved of capital. It's been very little capital deployment into developing new supply of almost anything, especially hard commodities, specifically hard commodities, right? So I'm talking about the metals and energy, but, but mainly the metals. And so now as we transition into this new era, the post-globalization era, call it friend shoring, call it near shoring, whatever it is. We don't know what it is yet. We'll know when we read about it in the history books. But for now, we can say we're no longer sharing like we used to. And any country that controls key materials recognizes it's time to get strategic. So Indonesia's doing their thing. Um, Russia's, you know, their reserve currency isn't really the ruble, it's energy, right? And they weaponized energy in response to the US weaponizing the dollar. And so Russia's now selling gas to China at 50% the cost they're selling to Europe. And so, you know, new alliances are being formed on the back of who supplies the key materials. So that new era, the post-globalization era, coupled with the starvation of capital into new supply of almost everything has just created a scarcity. We are already going to run into supply issues over the next 10 years, even if we we're all getting along, but we're no longer getting along. So there's now two major factors impacting the supply of key materials. And so that's my, that's my fundamental investment thesis right now, is I'm looking at the commodities that will dictate 
power over the next seven to 10 years, who has them, right? And who has access to them. Um, and so that leads me back to infrastructure metals like copper and nickel. I'm quite overweight gold right now, and I'm, I'm overweight gold for a couple of reasons, Eric. And there's you know, a couple of different ways that I play the gold market. But you know, number one, I'm, I'm buying, we're going to talk about the equities. I'm buying gold producers right now. And the reason that I'm buying gold producing companies is because they're incredibly cheap and the market hates them. And I can't time markets, so I don't try, but I can identify when something has become cheap and when something has become expensive. And I buy it when it's become cheap and I sell it when it's become expensive. And if I look at the gold uh, producers right now, there's a couple of things happening here. First of all, you know, healthy balance sheets, great management. Some of these companies are, are quite profitable, but the market sentiment hates them. And so their share price is very, very low. And in addition, that sector was really, really hot in 2020 and it carried through to 2021. And so a lot of new money rushed in on the back of that hype. And if you're a retail investor and you bought a position in XYZ Gold Company in 2021, because you thought that rally was going to continue and, and logically, you know, it kind of made sense to make that bet. But then in 2022, it corrects and suddenly you're down 40%. But you don't want to take a loss because that hurts. So you'll wait for the market to correct, right, to return. But now it's 2023, you're down 70%. Now you're really hurt. And simultaneously, economic conditions are getting pretty bad. And credit card delinquencies are climbing towards all-time highs, auto loan delinquencies, straight up and to the right, mortgage delinquencies, same thing. And new credit application rejections are at all-time highs. And so this is just to say the general economy is quite squeezed. They need cash. They've been accustomed to having access to it, and they don't have it anymore. So now they need cash at any cost. And they'll go back to those companies they invested in in 2021. Maybe they put 20 grand in. It's worth 4000 today, but they need that 4000 today. So now they'll hit the bid. And that's my opportunity to move in. It's predatory, but that's capitalism. This is when you go in, when everyone is, is depressed and hurting and the industry is hated and the share prices are cheap. And so I don't have a time horizon for that. And in my newsletter, I, I talk about when I build a position and often my subscribers are like, so you, this is going to run. That's what you're saying here. You're expecting a rally in the next quarter or two. And I'm not saying that at all. Like, I'm building a position now just because it's cheap. I don't know when it will become expensive. I don't have that part of the answer, but I can identify when things are cheap and build positions and put cash there today. And so I am in, in the precious metal sector uh, for those reasons right now. And then so on the, look, no, go ahead. This is good. I, this is because this is what I want to get into. So you mentioned copper, you mentioned nickel, you mentioned gold, and even some of the gold producers. What are some other? What are some other opportunities? That was my next question. Is other other kinds of commodities you're looking at? Other kinds of investments? I'd love to get a little bit of a, you know, here's what you like right now. Here's what you're building a position in, and then we'll get into some stuff of, you know, here's what I've gotten out of, and here's what I'm avoiding right now. Yeah, certainly. So, you know, what I would what I would preface this with, Eric, is I use the barbell approach with my portfolio. And so if I'm in, you know, junior gold equities producing half a million ounces per year, whatever, it's a high risk sector. And just to say, you know, it's gone down 70 percent. Some of these companies doesn't mean they can't go down further. They absolutely can. And so getting back to the early part of our conversation where we talked about how important duration is and how that's most frequently the winning strategy. The only way you accomplish duration is by staying at the table and not betting more than you can afford to lose. And so with the barbell strategy, that's just, it's really simple. It's, you know, I have my, my speculative investments over here, my equities, areas that I'm looking for a capital gain. And it's the smaller part of my portfolio. And then on the other side is the very boring, very stable uh, assets that lack volatility, 
for me, that's that's cash, that's GICs, treasuries, that's physical gold. Uh, I, I parked that there and, and real estate. And so, you know, whatever I put in the equity market, you know, I've been fortunate to have been mentored by a lot of people who have been in this business a lot longer than I have. You know, a lot of mutual friends like ours, like like Rick Rule. And how has Rick Rule become so successful in the resource business? Well, he's stayed in the game for over 45 years. Back to that. I mean, that's the core reason. He's been in the game for near 50 years now. Um, but most people bet too much too soon, get wiped out and run away with their tail between their legs before they ever have a chance at accomplishing duration. But then they have no capital to invest for the next 40 years. If you blow up in the first five, you can't keep staying in the game. Exactly. Exactly. hundred percent, hundred percent. And so identifying what kind of your, what kind of investor you are is the first thing everybody should do. And the way you do that is by determining how much time do you have to invest in being an investor? Because if you have half an hour a week, it's great, but stick to passive vehicles, probably ETFs and maybe some mutual funds. Don't try to pick stocks with half an hour a week. It's, it's not a good idea for you. If you have a few hours a day, then you can be competitive in that arena. Uh, but I always want to make sure whatever I'm buying that I, I know what my competitive advantage is. So getting back to the gold equities, like I, I outlined that case, I know why the sellers are selling. I know what's going on there. My competitive advantage is that I have liquidity right now, right? But whenever you're buying equity in a company, you're having a disagreement with somebody. It's, it's right. sort of a, you know, you're in the arena with them and you're having a disagreement because you see the value of that share as undervalued and going to go up. I mean, hopefully that's what you see, but somebody else is saying it's overvalued and going to go down. So you're having a disagreement. Well, what do you know that they don't? And if you can't answer that question, you should think really hard about what you're doing in that arena, because if you can't identify your competitive advantage. You're just gambling. You're buying Tesla because your friends are buying Tesla. Like it's not a good strategy. Right. And so I want to know, right. Um, that the game I'm playing, I have, I have a competitive advantage and I, I have some understanding about the rationale and motivation of the seller. Um, maybe I do know something they don't about why a company is undervalued, or maybe I just, I'm positioned differently to take advantage of a bear market. Uh, could be any of those things, but very important. What are you avoiding right now? What are you getting out of or shorting? What do you think is a bad investment in the resources space? Well, right now, you don't have to go as early stage as some folks are going. You don't have to go to the super speculative explorers because even the producers are remarkably cheap. And if I have conviction in the gold thesis, which I do, the reason I have conviction in the gold thesis is mainly because, you know, as my buddy Luke Groman says, there's very few times in history when you need to own gold. But during those times, it's about the only thing you want to own. Now, none of us have the ability to predict those times. But as volatility increases and the red flags get risen, maybe we're heading towards one of those times within my lifetime. And so I want to be prepared for that should it occur. I think it will in my lifetime. And physical gold, you mean, or some ETF or some you know investment gold? Or do you mean like you want bars of gold in your house? I, I buy physical gold and I take ownership of it. Uh, because the value of gold for me is the lack of counterparty risk. So right, whoever's holding the other side of that bet. And I want to own gold to eliminate counterparty risk. Now, there's definitely tons of private storage companies that do an excellent job um, and uh, a couple that I use, but you know, I like and prefer to take ownership of physical metal. And if you had to pick from a geopolitical point of view, over the next 10 years, what will be the three natural resources that will matter most in terms of hotspots, in terms of tensions? What will be the fights over? 
if you had to pick like the three hot ones? Yeah, yeah, I think. Okay, so there's there's maybe two questions there. Number one, what will the fights be over? And unfortunately, or, or let me let me rephrase. Yeah, when when people are reading the news, when people are what we you know they're looking at the news or hearing, they're watching Twitter, whatever it is. What are the three resources that if they see this thing mentioned, that should be a red flag for them? Like this one's really important. This one matters. Even though we, we talk about oil and gold a lot, but are there actually something that might be under the radar that this is going to bubble up over the next few years? So I, I think gold has a high probability of occurring in that conversation. And the reason that I would say that is because I look at the awareness of people who never used to care about monetary policy or never used to know what the term fiat meant and things like this, and suddenly they do. And so the percentage of the population who is asking questions about the viability of our currency system and the uh, ability of that currency to retain purchasing power over time is going way up. And so I'm seeing all sorts of mainstream you know, podcasts and, and personalities start talking about gold. And I never, ever would have thought I'd see that, to be honest, if I think through the last 12, 15 years, it was not something that anybody wanted to talk about. And you're kind of laughed at, you know, and for example, I own physical gold. I will get labeled as a gold bug. Yep. Even though I also own real estate, no one's calling me a real estate bug. You know, I mean, I own a lot of things, right? But because I own gold, you immediately get that label. And it's like, you know, it just is what it is. But I'm seeing that begin to change. Um, and so, you know, during these transition periods, we don't know where the puck's going next, but if the U.S. dollar is in its true sunset years and late innings, you know there's going to be a bridge period, a transition period where the lifeboats are going to get a lot of the action. And historically, gold has been that lifeboat. I mean, you look at the central bank uh, acquisition numbers globally. I think something like over 1,200 tons on a rolling 12-month average. That's huge volumes. That's like 40-year record. So why are central banks all over the world? buying gold in record rates? Why is China doing the same? And they produce more gold than anybody and they don't export any of it. So why are they stockpiling? And I, I think it's real simple. It's just that they don't know, they don't know what's gonna happen next. They don't know if World War III is about to materialize. They don't know if the US dollar is truly in its sunset years, but when you don't know, you want access to the lifeboat. And during those transition years, you wanna be able to step out of the system for a minute reassess and then jump back in. And historically, gold's been that asset. That's what Luke's talking about, right? And so, you know, I think the awareness of the importance of sovereignty and lack of counterparty risk is increasing. And that that does point you to gold. It also points you to Bitcoin. Um, and, uh, and so I think gold will be in that conversation. Um, I think copper and nickel, Eric, I, I think those two commodities are going to become increasingly important and strategic resources. And so we're going to see a lot of alliances formed on the back. I mean, I think, you know, Indonesia is in a very strategic place. Now, when Wododo says he's, he, he needs to dare to take these risks, he understands that countries have gone to war for less. He gets it, right? And so by owning more of that supply chain and restricting access, he's got to make friends at the same time. He can't just make enemies. And so... You know, he's courting the appropriate parties. He did meet with Biden last week, as I said, and they're striking a nickel deal, it looks like. And so copper and nickel, I think we don't move forward without those. It doesn't matter what you want to do. Expand existing infrastructure, build new stuff. You know, you don't move forward without those two. Okay. This is 
This is super fascinating, Jake. So tell us, just remind us again, everywhere that, that people can find you, if they want to see your work or they want to get your newsletter or the YouTube show, the conference, lay it all out for us so people can you know, get to you directly and learn more. Yeah, certainly. So um, it's at jmartinbc, like Bravo Charlie, on Twitter or any social media outlets. I'm quite easy to find. And my podcast is The Jay Martin Show. It's easy to find as well anywhere you listen to your podcasts, also on YouTube. And, uh, and then I publish a weekly Substack. It's called The Jay Martin Letter. Very original names. But uh, in my letter, you know, I, I publish a weekly essay where I, I break down the psychology of decision making for investors. And so I really dive into the heuristics and blind spots and biases that point us to our worst and, and best decisions. Uh, and then obviously I get into where I'm allocating capital. And then on November 30th, I'm hosting a conference called the Crisis and Chaos, the Changing World Order Conference. So people can find that by going to crisisandchaosevent.com. And a lot of the speakers that I mentioned there um, will be joining me for a full day on November 30th to break down that question. Like, how significant is this transition? Are we heading towards World War III? Is that a real conversation? Well, let's find out. So crisisandchaosevent.com. Check that one out. So good. So good, Jake. Thank you so much. This fantastic conversation. Uh, thanks for being here. And, I, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. My pleasure, Eric. I enjoyed it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks to our guest, Jay Martin. I know a lot of you are watching this and thinking this was pretty compelling. And, and maybe I don't have the right financial plan of attack here to figure out the next few years. Maybe you need some actual professional help. If you're already working with somebody that you trust, that's great. Excellent. Stay with them. But if you don't have the right person or you're not sure you have the right person, you don't trust them, you can certainly connect with us. You can consider scheduling a consultation with a financial advisor that Wealthion endorses at Wealthion.com. It's completely no strings attached. You can see the short form on Wealthion.com. Just takes a few seconds. Totally free to have these consultations. There's no pressure. There's no commitment to work with any of these advisors. We provide this as a free public service. We're trying to help as many people as possible get their finances on track. Look, if you enjoyed this conversation, if you like this video, if you like this podcast, please show your support. Like the video, like the podcast, subscribe so that more people can watch and hear this. Thank you again for watching. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.